Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good afternoon. I'm Kate Moss. I'm a novelist and a playwright. Very lucky to be on the board here. Um, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this wonderful temporary uh, third space, The Shed, at the National Theatre while the Cottesloe is being retransformed and will reopen again as the Dorfman. Um, now, this is the third in a series of lunchtime events that are called Scene Changes. And they're set up as part of our 50th um, anniversary season leading up to a, a big performance on the 2nd of November. And each one is intended to explore the sweeping changes that have happened in theatre over the past 50 years. Although, as I'm sure you will realise, none of us actually remember 50 years ago at all, do we? Um, so um, today we're going to be talking about administration and all the things that, if you like, go on behind the scenes, uh, the stuff that keeps the theatre going, that makes all the wonderful work that we all enjoy so much possible in some respects. Um, now, in the good old days, I hesitate to say uh, the good old days, really, I suppose early days, uh, marketing, in a way, was a matter of putting up a poster or two. Uh, fundraising was about bring and buy sales. Uh, ticketing was simply handing over a piece of paper across a counter. And access, in terms of increased access, was barely registered as being something that should be part of any planning process. Um, or is that too simplistic a view? So what we have got for you today is a panel of experts um, who are going to talk about their different areas of theatre administration. Um, so I'm going to just introduce the panel. Um, Pim Baxter, who is in, uh, is waving at you, I hope, yes, um, is a former member of the Nationals fundraising team and now Deputy Director and Director of Communications and Development at the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, Tony Heaton is the Chief Executive Shape a disability-led arts organisation working to improve access to culture for people with disabilities. The general manager of Sheffield Theatres, Sarah Nicholson, who also is a former uh, NT member of staff. I believe you've left twice, you told me. Um, I don't know what we should read into that. <laughs> Terrible employment practices here at the National. And by Anne Torrigiani, executive director of the audience agency, sitting at the end there. And I'm also delighted to say that this particular platform is being done as a live speech-to-text transcription by Claire Hill from Stage Tech. So Claire is over there and thank you. So welcome to you all. Um, Pim, I'm going to start with you. You um, spent I think nine years here at the I NT did, yes. as marketing manager and in the development department and you've worked in a, a range and across the arts. So it's a, it's a bit of a, you know, how long is a piece of string question about how much fundraising and marketing has changed. Uh, don't think about 50 years, <laughs> think about your time. So do you want to say a little bit about what you do and the changes that you've seen in, in the recent past? Yes, of course. Well, I think uh, one of the things about when I was here in the fundraising department, of course, was size of department. And um, across all the sort of major institutions, the size of the fundraising departments have changed quite radically, I would say. Um, and the other thing is, is looking, I mean, when I started here, we, we, had a, we got a lot of corporate support and looking at the current um, National Theatre Programme, you still get a lot of corporate support, which is terrific, but actually corporate support is becoming really quite difficult. And the individual side of giving has really changed quite radically. And if, when I look in, in the programme here, seeing how many wonderful individuals support you. When I was here, which was 16 years ago, um, we were really just starting out on that. So I remember introducing the Life Benefactor Scheme myself and we had very few patrons. So it is fantastic to see that level of support really, really increase. And do you think it's one of those areas that now people understand that it's a fundamental part of how a modern arts organisation, a theatre, actually works, that without 
that sort of dynamo powerhouse, many things that we, we take for granted wouldn't be able to happen. Yes, I, th I think that's a really key point, is that I, uh, certainly where I work now at the National Portrait Gallery, everybody in the organisation really buys into development and knows that they've got to be supportive of what, what we're trying to do, because what we're trying to do is make, in many cases, is to make a lot possible of what we're trying to keep going. Thank you. Um, Sarah, um, you, you <laughs> worked here as well in, at the, the NT studio, and I think you were literary manager at the Don Mar as well. So and now you're at Sheffield. There are three different uh, auditoria there, your general manager. Um, and I think you're in charge of mostly the creative team's production. So could you just explain a little bit about what you do and how you perceive the changes in, in your side of things? Um, yes, my job, I'm, I'm responsible for the production department, so lighting, sound, wardrobe, stage, <laughs> and other things, things. other things that are <laughs> incredibly important, <laughs> ladies other and gentlemen. Elements, yeah. Other elements involved <laughs> in productions. And um, I, I think if I was going to sum up my job in three words, it's sort of people, crises and money. <laughs> um, so it's anything from um, crisis in terms of casting, um, negotiation, negotiation with agents, um, dealing with rights for shows, um, looking at future programming, and then the day-to-day -day sort of pastoral care of the acting company. Um, there's about 50 plus in production and we worked obviously as a team and then I work really closely with Danny Levens, our artistic director and Dan Bates our chief exec on future and current programming that's going on. Um, I think that th one of the things that I've noticed is that in some organisations I would be called a producer and um, certainly that, ti that title seems to have crept into subsidised theatre a lot more and um, it used to be in commercial theatre, I think that's one of the biggest changes. And sometimes people think I just work on snooker. <laughs> sometimes people assume I've got keys to the building, but I haven't yet. And, um, and I'm not responsible for front of house. So it's, it's solely productions, in which I feel is incredibly lucky. And is that a relatively recent idea, that there are certain sort of backstage uh, pastoral care, if you like, that belong specifically with productions, and so dividing up jobs? Or is this something that's always happened at Sheffield because of the nature of the work there? Um, there have been some changes over the last few years in Sheffield, but I think that those jobs are always being done. Perhaps titles have changed and um, an understanding of individuals' responsibility. But I think in terms of pastoral care for the acting company, um, making sure we're working in line with equity, uh, with the union agreement and BEC2 um, and the MU, I think that hasn't changed. But I think that everybody's clearer now in terms of what their resp responsibilities are in terms of looking after everybody. Right, thank you. Tony. Hello. <laughs> hello, hello. Um, you, apart from being the, um, the CEO, I think, of Shape, yep. are also, of course, an artist yourself, a, a sculptor. Yep. And you created those wonderful lecterns that I we did. used at the Paralympic Games, yeah. um, which I think deserves a round of applause more than anything else. Um, <laughs> now, you um, campaigned for increased access yeah. in terms of accessibility in terms of buildings but also the sort of audiences that are being encouraged in not just in theatre but across all cultural arena. Yes. Uh, do you think there are specific challenges or opportunities for theatre or is it actually just more about buildings versus uh, art forms that don't necessarily happen in a fixed space? Gosh. I know <laughs> you've got two minutes <laughs> two and minutes. it starts for ten starting yeah, now. Okay we work towards creating better access. I mean, what we've got is disabled people and we've got institutions. And we've got institutional thinking in both, actually. 
So what we've got to try and do is change the institutional thinking in the institutions and change the institutional thinking in disabled people who think that the cultural sector isn't for them, either as audiences or as potential employees or as, um, well, just to get engaged in the cultural life of the country, really. So I think what SHAPE tries to do, and we're a relatively small organisation, is infiltrate organisations and work with whoever we can work with to try and create better access opportunities or give disabled artists an opportunity to show their work to a wider public, but also to decision makers. And when you um, are involved in these sorts of discussions yeah. with people who run buildings and presumably campaigning groups for disability access, yeah. do you notice that there are certain issues that come up as regards theatre or are they actually just more focused on buildings? Any building? It's, it's the whole thing, I think. I was thinking about this earlier and in the Shape Archive we've got this wonderful black and white photograph of um, somebody in a wheelchair being pushed up. What I think is a stage door, that's what it looks like, but it's, it's lent against um, a, a flight of stairs. And it's always, that's always the starting point, isn't it, the ramp. So there's this huge, you know, half a dozen stairs up the front of the theatre and somebody's put this huge door or whatever it is and there's about three blokes pushing this poor soul up this <laughs> mountainous thing and then they probably put the door back on at the end. And I think we've moved quite a long way from that. So I think in terms of physical access, we've started, we're nowhere near got there, but we started to think about how do we make the world more accessible. And by that, I really think I mean about inclusive design. Because in the early days, it was about how do we create what used to be called disabled access. And I think now we talk about inclusive design, which means we make the world better for all of us. And you know, shared facilities, more accessible facilities, are great for everybody, not just for disabled people. So there's a more inclusive approach to, um, to physical access. But I think there's a bigger discussion to be had about how do we get into people's minds that people with learning disability want to come or should be able to come and experience the same uh, um, amazement that we get from coming to theatre or seeing art in an art gallery and not feel marginalised by um, the treatment they might get by front of house staff or by a management decision. And there have been a couple of quite well publicised cases recently, haven't there, of theatres putting on uh, particular shows that are appropriate for autistic and Asperger's yes, children relaxed, and young relaxed people. relaxed performances. Yeah. And I'd encourage everybody to go to a relaxed performance, actually. It's quite fun. <laughs> it's a bit like um, you know when you start throwing food about at the end of a party. I'm sure you all do that. <laughs> uh, it's a national theatre audience, yeah, Tony. What yeah, do you mean? Yeah. Um, Anne, you, you have more than 15 years' experience as marketing director in many progressive arts organisations. Uh, you know, West Yorkshire Playhouse and with the London International um, Fest Theatre Festival. Um, now, I know you're very interested in the democratisation of audiences and, and the, what, you know, the huge amount that that actually means. So could you just say a little bit about what you do and how you think things are changing or evolving at the moment? Yeah, um, uh, yes. So I work for uh, an organisation called the Audience Agency and as well as helping lots of organisations with their audiences, a lot of what, what finding audiences in different ways, a lot of what we do is understanding what audiences look like um, what they look like in different places, um, the impact of what we do on audiences and so on. So, so I kind of have this, um, I'm obsessed with watching what audiences do all the time, kind of thing, both in a sort of macro way, but in a sort of minute way. I can't, you know, if, if I sit in a show, if I'm getting a little bit, 
you know, squiggling my chair. I can't, I'm, I'm sort of looking at the audience. I find this sort of a bit more interesting than, than what's on stage sometimes. But anyway, um, so that's my, so that's, uh, my uh, sort of background. And I, although I have been a pr practitioner, so I was, every now and then I remi remind myself what it's like to be not one step removed. But um, I think what I think is really what has changed, what has changed and what hasn't changed is what's interesting over that period. So it's not 50 years, but certainly... I think 20 years ago, Pim and I were just saying that 20 years ago, we, we didn't know who our audiences were anyway. <laughs> we just sort of, you know, blindly sort of shoved stuff out there and hoped that they, they came. Um, and I think, you know, probably about 15 years ago, we started to have uh, easy ways of understanding who was coming, who wasn't coming, and, and understanding the profile of those people. And now we know quite a lot about them. And over the time that we've been able to sort of count trends, changes over time, it's interesting that audiences for the arts, the subsidised arts in general, and but, uh, but also for, for theatre have you know, give or take the odd dip around recession times and so on, you know, audiences have pretty steadily grown, which is a, I was talking to an economist the other day that said, that's, well, that's a pretty amazing thing, given the economic climate we've been in and so on. So, so in that sense, we're doing really well. Uh, we know there are lots of people who um, want to come to the theatre. We've seen things like NT Live, uh, you know, sort of um, um, stream broadcast, really reaching uh, new different audiences all over the country um, because actually those people couldn't get to see the National Theatre's work. And it, it looks as though, from a number of different studies, the net effect of those things is to just increase audiences. So that's all really good. So we're good at getting more audiences, and I think we're getting incrementally really better at it much more quickly. I think we're using technology to do that and so on. What is interesting is what hasn't changed in terms of who our audiences, who our audiences are. Uh, they're not. There's a bit of a myth that audiences are getting older. I don't think that's particularly true. I mean, it may be true in some very particular areas. You know, there's a big question around orchestral music and so on, and even that's not proven. Um, but I think it is interesting that despite lots and lots of top-down schemes, um, uh, my colleague of mine did something like 20 years of kind of widening access schemes. I, mean, don't, I don't mean physical access, I mean all sorts of different kinds of access. But actually, the audience profile hasn't changed very much over that period of time, time at all. So the demographics of who engages to the arts, and particularly of who engages with theatre, has stayed pretty stable. And I think that's quite an interesting. And that's actually quite homogenous. So across, across lots of different organisations, you see the same sort of people cropping up. And about, we think about um, lots of different studies show that about 10% of the population um, are very highly engaged with the arts, and about another 20% are sort of somewhat, you know, kind of interested in the arts, do it a bit. And there's about 30% of the, the population who, the 30% of the population who just aren't interested at all. And that we haven't really done very much to change that. That, that was interesting because I, I thought I saw in the paper um, last week uh, a particular um, yeah, survey, myself, another. Yeah. I don't know if it was one of yours. No, it um, wasn't. About <laughs> this, that, 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 <laughs> that suggested that actually more people, particularly in the younger age bracket, had been engaged in some sort of theatre than had been to a football match. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, th I think that was that was ticket. It was Ticketmaster had had understood, for probably possibly for the first time ever had looked at. Mm. But Ticketmaster have a very broad definition of theatre. Mm. Oh, right. <laughs> Nobody can afford to go to a football match anymore. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, it's it's yeah. all about that's the pricing. Pricing huge. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've j just so that you all have, you know, just explained briefly where you sit in in this discussion about the broad idea of what administration is behind the scenes. Um, with marketing, Pim, yeah. if we can just all think about marketing before we move on to fundraising, what Anne says about being able to target people now. We know who people are and what they come to and what they might buy. It has the drive been uh, recently in getting the people who do come to come more at the expense of broadening it out, as Anne suggests, or do you think both things are going hand in glove? I think both things are going hand in glove. That you you want to have your regular audience 
keep coming back, but you also want to broaden the audience. And the thing about the difference in one of the big differences in marketing now is, of course, social media, because you're, you know, and you're you're communicating um, immediately with some of your audience. I mean, sometimes your audience knows something you've done before you know it, actually, because that you know that there's the you know nothing is really kind of let's wait and announce this. You know, things can be out there quite quickly, and I think um, you know. We are, we are all, I mean, we, it's, it's very interesting the fact that, as you say, you know, audiences are growing, even though we're, we're kind of, we've been in a, you know, quite a difficult economic <coughs> climate, that, that from the point of view of us at the Portrait Gallery, our audiences have grown and grown, and we, we're now over two million, and audiences here are growing, and, and across the, the sector. So people do want to come and, and see what, what's, um, you know, what is on our stages, what is in our galleries. But I think the way we're communicating with them now is, is, you know, we can, you know, segment, say, these people really like photography or these people really like, you know, plays, you know, historic plays or whatever, and, and target them. And do you, th do you think that that's to do, I mean, any of you, uh, please answer this, to do with flexibility so that people can now find out at any moment of the day or night when something's on, how much it costs, and can therefore book a ticket? Do you think it's partly that, that it seems less, you know, you have to pick up the phone between nine and five and, and that's it? Or, or is it actually that... It's cleverer in where you put your posters, how you approach people, whether you send them letters. Tony, I think. Yes, I, I think for lots of people, you can do that. It's much more flexible. If people have an access booking line, then it's not because you're still constrained by the nine to five or you're paying for a call rather than being able to book a ticket through a ticket master or whatever it might be. You've got to go to a specific access line, which is a sort of, you know, a staffed thing, but it's staffed between certain hours because you, you because what they see is that you'll want to book with very specialist requirements rather than, you know, Roger, seat 15 or whatever it might be. So for a lot of disabled people, it is still very rigid and it still costs money to book because <coughs> you can't, it's not free. It's a, it's um, often an expensive phone line. Right. So, so actually that, that's part of, you know, the work that Anne is doing about all of the different audiences. There's, there's still a need to make the same opportunities available for people yeah. who, yeah. Beca because what I think what happens is the world is that it's led by non-disabled people. That they hold the power, they hold the control, and they make things for them that work for themselves, and it, that's perfectly understandable. So then, so then we spent 50 years trying to catch up in terms of access, trying to get into places that everybody who isn't disabled can get into. And now we're looking at technology, which again is leaving disabled people behind because you've got to book through an access scheme. And one of the things we, uh, I'll do a shameless plug for our, we did an audience, Understanding Disabled People as Audiences, which is on our website and also is on the Arts Council's website. But one of the things we talked about in here is that if you're a student, you can, be, you can join the National Union of Students, you get a card and wherever there's student discounts, you can use that card. But for disabled people, there's different access schemes in different galleries and different theatres. So you've got to jump through these hoops, which are different hoops depending on which uh, institution you're engaging with to proof of disability, different set of uh, um, rules and uh, concessions. So again, quite a complex um, gateway into uh, enjoying theatre or in enjoying the arts. Sarah? Well, I always feel a bit sorry for marketing when we have discussions like this because I think that people, th people who don't know about marketing and communications think, well, if it's a good show, you haven't got that much to do. Um, and when it doesn't sell very well, you haven't done a very good job. 
they're not, they're <laughs> not my views. But, and I think that, um, I remember being in a, um, here when we did the Ramayana and um, at Direct Brain do Ruby Singham and everybody's saying, oh gosh, it's so great, look at the audience, it's so diverse, it's so interesting. And then writing to all those people about Trevor Nunn's forthcoming production of The Cherry Orchard with the Redgraves and thinking, well, I don't think those people were coming to that, those people were coming to that show, to the Ramayana, because of that story. And I think that it's so important for, pro for people who are programming theatres to work really closely with their marketing teams because it's, got, it's, what, it's about what's on stage, I think. I'm not saying that brilliant marketing isn't really valuable, but if it's, it's so hard to sell something that doesn't speak to people. And nothing demonstrates that more than in Sheffield because uh, the Lyceum, which is um, like the Littleton here, but has mostly touring work and it's your dirty dancing and your Shreks and everything. And um, none of, hardly any of those audience members go to the Crucible. And yet they'll, they'll come and see Joseph every other year and Blood Brothers. Nothing wrong with either of those shows, but they won't go, oh, I might go and see Michael Frayne or a Harold Pinter play. And I think um, it, I always, and, and still now, 10, 11, I can't remember when we did it, 10, 11 years ago, um, I, st I still always think, I always think, but what's, what's on stage? What's the story? What, does it resonate with people? I think, um, I think it's easy to just overlook that sometimes and just think about posters and website and Twitter and Facebook and everything. And actually, it's just so much more complex than that mm. and multi-layered, you know. Mm. So Anne? I, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think I, we were talking earlier on about the, the, you know, in the last 50 years, what the big moments of change were. And I think there, there was a moment of change where uh, we, we all, I used to remember something called the Society of Arts Publicists. Mm, I bet you were too, didn't you? Yes, I think one of the founding members, probably. Certain people in the audience, <laughs> by the sounds of it. Yeah. We, were all, we were all publicists then, and we're all marketers now. And I, and I think, uh, especially in my work, because I'm obviously working outside organisations with them, but you know, it's just to remind people that marketing isn't, isn't publicity and it isn't communications. Actually, marketing is about the right thing for the right people, at the right place, at the right time, in the right way. And so it simply doesn't exist unless programmers and um, people who are doing communications and, and uh, working out how to get to the market are talking to each other. I mean, the, and, it, and, it, and it, that has been one of the frustrations, I think, of the last few years, that we kind of know, you know, you know an organisation, a, a, a creative organisation is really thriving when those people really have a creative and interesting relationship and are listening to each other. And you can see it. You can see it because it's actually it, it what's what makes the difference to results. So I think um, we've, we've had an awareness for a long time that that's the optimum way of working. I think there's still a barrier to, you know, we're still, we're still very exercised as an industry about the supply side of what we do. We're a little bit less engaged about the demand side, you know, and sometimes I'm sure that's not the case here, but um, I know the marketing department, some of the marketing departments are here, but, um, but, you know, I mean, in lots of places, I still think there is a sort of, there's a, you know, there are people in a marketing box doing some things mm. over here, and it has very little to do with the, you know, the majority of the organisation is still sort of supply oriented and, you know. So. But one of the things that is both a challenge as, w as well as the obvious opportunity about now knowing who people are, picking up on your point, Sarah, and what you were saying as well, Pim, is that there is a danger, isn't there? It, looking at the bookers for one particular play and assuming that they will only like this play, or I'm sure, Tony, you would say often the idea that things are marketed very strongly towards disabled audiences if it happens to be a play about disability, yeah. forgetting that audiences are audiences. Sure. So sometimes is it ever the challenge really to not narrow down too much or is that the problem the sense of the joseph audience really doesn't want you know to come and see indus you know um, latest direction 
But we have we have got quite a lot of evidence, you know. I mean, yeah. it's not this is not based on a bunch of that, that's the difference. It isn't based on a bunch of prejudices kind of thing. It's based it's based on I mean, these are quite complex things. I mean there are lots of different ways of promoting things. It's not as though we're you know, people only get to find out things about a little bit of niche um, kind of direct, direct marketing. So I think we just have a greater sense of it. And people I remember um, my favourite direct mail letter ever, which some people have heard me talking about probably, said uh, it, it was it started, Dear Japanese drama lover. <laughs> have you ever identified yourself as a Japanese? That is no. niche. You know, so that, that's sort of, I mean, clearly that, that sort of, that's kind of nonsense. But, but actually, people do, in a world in which Amazon is working out what you want every minute of the day, people expect you to be highly responsive to the to different know who they are. And they get a bit irritated, actually, in, in my experience, about but give this constant, this idea that actually you're not a valued member of, of you know, the National Theatre's audience unless you want to come and see kind of core product. And actually, you know, and actually mo most, I think, really successful organisations like the National that have an increasingly broad and interesting, diverse programme, I think that's a great public message because people want to engage with different parts of it. But they'll decide. Our job is to make sure that they can decide. And that know. they know about it. And that they know about mm -hmm. it, you know. So. Um, Tony, I, just, I want to ask yeah. something specific about um, audience experience. You know, we are wonderfully, and Claire is doing an amazing job having a speech-to-text. Um, and I came to the Edward II um, speech-to-text matinee on Sunday. I'd never gone to one of those before, and I thought I'd like to see how it works. And I was really stunned by how much it increased my appreciation of the event. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you were all talking a little bit about there are many things that are wonderful about speech to text and other signed performances and, and you know, relaxed performances, but also sometimes the people in key jobs in fundraising, marketing, general management, production, have a juggling act to do. So could you talk a little bit about those sorts of performances mm -hmm. and then you guys say what your experiences have been in your particular areas? I think the starting point for me is that um, people are very resistant to change and is back to that institutionalised thinking of an institution. And I think, you know, we, Pim and I were talking earlier about the introduction of sign language performance. And you, know, you think that's, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, you think, well, that's fantastic because what it recognises is there's a group of people in this country who uh, sign language is their first language um, and they they are able to access something that's wonderful that we all love and um, it, that is being facilitated by a human being who is providing a, sound, a, a performance interpretation and and then you get people saying i'm really distracted by this person stood at the side of the stage waving their hands about so you know so how i don't know how you decide you know whether it's about pr providing access or whether it's dealing with howls of protests from from rather small-minded people who get get a bit exercised when people make involuntary noises in a theatre, because it's the unwritten rules of theatre or art galleries, isn't it? The sort of unwritten rules that we somehow know by osmosis about making noises and how you get in and out of places. And for some disabled people, they don't you know they just don't simply don't understand those rules mm. and don't realise that there might be winding up half the audience so you know i don't know how you square that circle particularly except to be more relaxed yourselves and a bit sort of less hung up about um, i don't know maybe it's a, I, I don't have a problem with it personally so my prejudice yeah. is not understanding people who have a problem with it yeah <laughs> yeah Sarah. I, um i think we're, we're starting to do uh, relaxed performances this christmas and um i think one of the most important things one of the important responsibilities I have is to try and ensure that when we're communicating what we're doing to production, 
and staff internally, we're not like, right, we're doing a relaxed performance. You know, it's another thing that's going in and we've just got to do it. You know, that actually we're telling them about... And don't be scared of it. Yeah, no, and, and lo lots and lots of staff are really up for it and um, we're all really excited about it. And I think some, some people, especially in production, have surprised us um, by saying, well, actually, I'd rather go to that. I mean, we are doing it for the panto. So that's going to be interesting anyway. And we're going to have to brief the actors because, of course, they're used to responding to um, yes. the response from the audience. So I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. But we are talking about it doing next year as well. And I think, I think we have to, as people working in organisations, normalise things and then and and promote them internally. And then hopefully, mm. I think you've got to sell it as well. Yeah. As, isn't this a fantastic thing we're doing? No, we're really sorry about this, no, but exactly. there's some deaf people yes. who need access to it. You know, I'm really, really sorry. Um, some people might make a bit of a noise and really sell it as a, this is fantastically inclusive thing that we're doing and uh, you should all be proud of us. Yeah. Mm. It, it, I mean, it should absolutely be part of what you're offering. And mm. I remember when we first started Sign Language Interpretive Performances here with um, the wonderful Roz Hayes, who works here. And um, we didn't, mm. you know, we, we really didn't know to start with how many people were really coming and and you know taking advantage of it being a sign interpretive performance but it was it was a fantastic thing to be mm. part of at the beginning and 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 like you i mean i used to kind of be absolutely fascinated watching the 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 interpreter and i think it was a terrific thing to have done and obviously it's i'm sure here it's moved on you know um, you know threefold but um i think that it's it has to just be part and of this what is you're a offering. huge change mm. over you're this not 50 year period yeah. isn't it mm. yeah, yeah. And Anne, with all the work you do, presumably these are the sorts of uh, things that you look at, as well as who the audience is, who they could be, the range of experience that any audience who and any audience member could have. Yeah, I think I, I, was at, I was at a conference of front of house managers the other day, and this uh, and the, a particular issue had come up about uh, that a critic had been rather famously there was a bit of a hoo-ha in the press about the fact that he got very irritated. He, he gets very irritated about you know sweets, papers, and kind of thing, and, and any kind of interpretation and so on. And uh, I, you know, if I if I had been in, in with my with my marketing um, colleagues, we'd have all been tutting, going for goodness sake, grow up, you know. But everybody, all the front house managers were going, oh god, it's a nightmare because their, their daily reality is every audience is full of um, you know hundreds of different people with different views and opinions about what what they want everything to be like. And of course, they're at the front end of trying to deal with that. And I, I was amazed by their their kind of reaction, of course, because they they have to listen to the loudest voices, the quietest voices, and all that stuff. So I think that's quite. Um, I think it's an extremely tricky one, but I did, th I did, I was kind of getting more and more growly. This guy was kind of really he was appalled by the standards of the audiences these days, and things. Um, and I did think, I'm wondering whether we could have something called an unrelaxed performance for people like you <laughs> and all other performances. <laughs> Only bow ties. Could be relaxed performances, kind of thing. We could just have, you know, if you really want this to be the, the old yeah. way it was when we were very reverent, you could come to the one performance in the run and the rest of us could go to the yeah. others. Mm. would be really nice. That is a brilliant idea. idea. Yeah. Well, they do now have child-free holidays or something, don't they? So I suppose quiet carriage in the train. The quiet carriage in the quiet train. Quiet carriage yeah. in the train. Exactly. I have a the problem with the quiet all. carriage in the train because it's one with the wheelchair access space. <laughs> So I, when I make a noise and everybody touches me, I say, well, I don't have a choice. I'm put here whether I like it or not. Well, there we are. The uh, complexities of all of very these. Complex. Um, yeah. now, very complex. Now, before we go to the audience, because I want everybody to have a chance to ask their questions, Pim, can I just ask you a little bit about one of the key areas that you mentioned at the beginning about fundraising? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the sort of mixed bag of sort of public funding in some places, private funding, corporate funding. Um, presumably, this is an area that has enormously changed, partly because of the data now available, but also, has it changed because more people see themselves as 
potential supporters, you know, over and above be buying a ticket that they see themselves as, well, I suppose, a patron? Well, yes, I mean, you're, you're the, the in performing arts, the person that buys the ticket is, could be your, you know, your potential supporter. Um, and I think that it, I think it has changed um, immensely. I mean, I think it's changed because of the, ne the, the plurality of funding and the, 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 the number of things that we all offer to our, our, our visitors and our supporters. And the thing is, that a lot of them support they all support the different organisations, so they know exactly what they're getting in each place. So they're very, very um, astute about what you, what you can offer them. And you know, we've, as I said at the beginning, you know, <laughs> fundraising teams have um, grown because you know we also know. I mean, not that we didn't when I was here really look after our supporters, but one of the key things is looking after both your individuals, your corporates the relationship you have with trusts and foundations. And you need people that are, that are doing that. You need the people that are going out and trying to find new sources of income. But it's really key that you're looking after the people that are already supporting you. And that's crucial. I mean, it always has been crucial, but I think that professionalism is, is absolutely embedded now in, in everyone. And is there um, a new sort of form of money coming on stream for particular areas? So for example, access for people of different abilities coming into theatres. Is, th is that a particularly new form of fundraising or is that always been there within trusts and funds? I think it's there in trusts and funds, but I still think it is, it is actually still quite challenging to, to, um, to raise money in those areas. And I, but I think, you know, th that you can, if you can have a, a relationship with an individual who may, you know, find that particularly interested and want to support it. But I mean, from, from, a, from the gallery's point of view, things like our conservation, our learning, our access. It is mostly trusts and foundations that we are still going to for that kind of support. Thank you. Um, I think the things that have come out of it have been really wonderful. The enormous contribution that marketing and development and fundraising makes. The wonderful changes that have happened in access to different sorts of audiences, but the fact we need to protect those and keep it moving forward. The ways in which things are changing within multiple theatres, how you speak to people, how you try to get different audiences in. Um, there will be another um, scene changes on Monday at five past one, which will be on theatre design. I will be back here at six o'clock uh, for uh, an interview with uh, Jim Carter and Imelda Staunton as part of the National Histories. Uh, but for now, could you please thank the panel very much for their time. Thank you. And Tim, Tony and Sarah. Thank you. And also to Claire. Thank you very much.